of Southwest Church, located in the heart of Springboro, Ohio, at 150 Remick Boulevard, beside the Kaufman Family YMCA. Please visit our website at www.southwestchurch.org. victory over the Axis powers. And if you weren't in the military yourself, you certainly and happily uh, did your part in making any number of sacrifices uh, while you were at home, just sacrificing in a different way. So sometimes, uh, you know, people would plant what were called victory gardens, just your typical vegetable gardens on both public and private land, just to kind of take off that pressure that was on the uh, food supply for the whole country. There were any number of drives. There were drives for rubber. There were scrap metal drives just uh, for the materials and equipment needed to, uh, well, keep financing the war and just meet the needs on the battlefronts. Possibly the most famous or well-known way of bringing in this money was the selling of war bonds. How these work, if you don't know, was you would buy a war bond, just giving the government uh, a certain allotted amount of money. And in 10 years or so, you would get that money back from the government, but with interest. But in with all those very creative ways to bring in money to finance the war, again, those final months of the war, just, the money just wasn't coming in. And things were looking dire. Anyway, that all changed on a particular date. On February 23rd, 1945, a photograph was taken by a man named Joe Rosenthal that certainly would change everything. This photograph, from the time it was taken, took less than a day, I think around 17 and a half hours, to make it from, you know, picture taken to New York and then eventually on the front page of every major newspaper. And this photograph, coupled along with some other new marketing strategies, money from the citizens of the United States came rolling in once more, just like uh, there were no problems like people... Uh, had money to spend, just, you know, couldn't get rid of it fast enough. In this photograph, it won the Pulitzer Prize that particular year. And now we consider it the most famous photograph or image associated with World War II. Do you know what it is? We have it up here. It is the famous raising of the American flag on Mount Suribachi during the Battle of Iwo Jima. Look at this photograph for a moment. What kind of feelings and emotions does this bring out in you? For me, it's uh, certainly pride, uh, courage, patriotism. I imagine it's the same or very similar for all of you sitting there. And uh, we could sit here and dissect and analyze exactly why this picture evokes such a response from us. But it comes down to a flag. It comes down to the pattern that is on that piece of cloth that's on that pole as being staked or planted into the ground. We know what this means for all of us. It means that this is now our spot, this is our territory, this is our victory, and there is no chance we're going to give this up, at least without, without a really, really, really good fight. Such symbolism coming from something as simple as six guys planting a pole in the ground with a flag on it. We are in week four of eight weeks of this more series. And up to this point, we've walked through a number of things. We've walked through, you know, finding our sweet spot as far as how has God uniquely made each and every one of us for 
kingdom impact, you know, how we are best wired to show the love of Christ to other people who might need that from us. We've been through exactly, you know, who we're following, just a very uh, foundational 101 look at what discipleship is, who we're following, and recognizing that we have a place, we have a small but integral part to play in this movement that we call the church. And last week, we kind of had the phrase, grabbing the torch, that was the title of Roger's message last week, just the idea of carrying the gospel, being the hands and feet to where we are, and today we address that more specifically. This morning, just kind of the message, it's just called planting the flag. Today is all about recognizing your own unique individual mission field, being able to identify your unique kingdom territory. And I'll show you my hand right now. I want everyone in here leaving the building, leaving this room, knowing that God has placed you in a specific place in order to make a specific impact. In a few weeks, Rogers, uh, he's going to be bringing a message called Mapping Your Territory, where he'll get into like the nitty-gritty, very practical look at how to make the most of your impact in your territory. But today, it's just very very much a just knowing and realizing that you do, in fact, have a unique territory all your own. Uh, Around here uh, at Southwest, we read the last few verses of the Gospel of Matthew. That's chapter 28, 18 through 20. We read those verses a lot around here, and it's a really good reason. Uh, We call this the Great Commission, and it's that job description for everyone who calls themselves a Jesus follower. Again, you've heard it a lot. You Maybe you've read it a lot, where Jesus says to the remaining 11 disciples in front of him, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them them in the name of the Father, the Son, Holy Spirit. And he goes on like that. And that's how he wraps up. Those are the final words, the final lines of of Matthew's gospel. But this same scene uh, can show up in other places. For instance, uh, Luke, who wrote the gospel of Luke, he also wrote the book of Acts. He looks at this same scene from a slightly different perspective. We read it, of it in Acts chapter 1. It's going to be on the screen. Um, read along with this. This is Jesus speaking. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses, telling people about me everywhere, in Jerusalem, throughout Judea, in Samaria, to the ends of the earth. After saying this, he was taken up into a cloud while they were watching, and they could no longer see him. As they strained to see him rising into heaven, two white-robed men suddenly stood among them. Men of Galilee, they said, why are you standing here staring into heaven? Jesus has been taken from you into heaven, but someday he will return from heaven in the same way you saw him go. Uh, I'm going along in my you know, daily Bible reading plan that many of us here in Southwest, we have the same deal that Roger suggested sometime back in January. Anyway, anytime I read, uh, nowadays I can typically find uh, a good bit of humor in whatever I'm reading on a particular day, even maybe especially when there's no real humor to be found. So I was reading this early this week, and I, I did more than chuckle. I laughed out loud just the idea of what it looked like, these 11 guys just watching Jesus go up. You know, it doesn't say how fast he's going he probably didn't go up like as fast as a rocket ship. That'd be comical, probably. But also, I don't know. What I'm laughing at, I just kind of imagine him just going so slowly, like kind of when you release a balloon, and just goes up so slowly. And it says these guys were just straining to see him. So we kind of do the same deal. Just when you watch a balloon, just wait till it's a dot, and then you can't see it anymore. I imagine these guys just waiting that long, maybe doing a wave, by Jesus sort of deal. It's probably only funny to me. 
But they're watching this, I, in my mind, in silence, and then these two white-robed men suddenly appear, I'm comfortable calling them angels, and say, hey guys, snap out of it. Jesus, he's gone. He's going to be back eventually, but uh, hey, we got, uh, we got a lot of work to do. In this instant, as soon as Jesus disappears, he's in heaven, in that moment, he effectively kind of hands over the reins and says, all right, now it's your turn. Here is your part in making disciples of all nations. That's the language he uses, is all nations. Now, we know that Jesus never misspoke in anything he ever said, but uh, I kind of wish he had at least slightly different or altered final words. I wish there was a little, like an addendum at the end of the Great Commission. Yeah, he says, go and make disciples, but I wish he had said this. I wish he said, go and make disciples of all nations, as well as make disciples of those people who you see every day and hang around with already. Go and make disciples of the people in your everyday life. He didn't say that, though. He kind of just says, all nations. Which, when we hear the phrase, or the two words together, all nations, you know, at least for me, it kind of conjures up, well, making disciples, I guess it's more for those who call themselves missionaries, or maybe it's for pastors, or maybe it's for just people who, I don't know, just like to go on mission trips a lot. But the truth is, just as much as making disciples of all nations, Jesus calls us to make disciples exactly where we are, too. Just as important as making those of all nations. Uh, you know, just looking at your own life, I can certainly relate to this. You know, some people maybe have in mind that maybe if God called them to Mexico or an exotic country or a place in Africa or wherever, then they would go in a heartbeat just taking up, you know, the adventure that God has called them to. I, maybe you've heard as many stories as I have of some some married couple having the dream in the middle of the night at the exact same time they wake up. It's like, oh, we've got to go to Africa. I don't know. I hear a lot of those stories. Maybe you've heard... Um, such a story yourself, maybe it was like, oh, if that would happen to me, then yeah, we're leaving America, no problem, selling everything, and we're going to wherever God calls us to go. It sounds super adventurous. Or maybe you just had that sense of adventure when you were in your younger days and just uh, had your most idealistic. There are dreams of you know, that happening, maybe for some of us, or people we know. But how often are the dreams had of just reaching your own neighborhood? How many dreams are there about reaching that coworker just a few cubicles on down for us? Chances are there aren't nearly as many of those types of dreams out there. Because as soon as we get extremely local, as local as we can get, it stops sounding like an adventure and just kind of starts sounding like, well, it just sounds like work. Which I get that. I'm no different from anyone in this room. You know, many of us, we dream of doing these big things for God, but we might be struggling in just doing these small things. And the reason is, it just comes down to an issue of time or energy. That's probably the case for everyone in this room. We just don't have the time, or oh, I just don't have the energy for something like that. But here's a big reason why we don't have these types of dreams of reaching people locally. The reason is that dreaming is always going to be more convenient than doing no matter what it is, dreaming is always going to be more convenient than doing. If you're going through the small group material that is kind of a supplement to this entire series, uh, maybe it was this last week, maybe it's this coming week, I'm not sure. Uh, my own group were a little off schedule. Um, but either you have, you're going to come across this parable that Jesus tells in Luke chapter 16. And I won't read the parable, but it comes down to a guy who has kind of mismanaged the resources that he's been given. 
And the punchline is something that we've kind of all heard likely in one way or another, the idea that, hey, if you're faithful in small things, you're going to be faithful in big things. Which the truth that goes along with that is if we ignore or abuse or misuse what God has given us, be that materials or opportunities or relationships, if we misuse, ignore, abuse those, then simply put, God's not going to give us an opportunity for the big things. Together, I want to look at a passage uh, where something just wonderful happens because someone was faithful exactly where they were. Uh, This is from the letter we know as 1 Timothy. Uh, Paul, the apostle, writes this to the young uh, church leader, Timothy, who he has discipled over and over. We'll read this from 2 Timothy chapter 1, starting in verse 3. Paul writes, Timothy, I thank God for you, the God I serve with a clear conscience, just as my ancestors did. Night and day, I constantly remember you in my prayers. I long to see you again, for I remember your tears as we parted, and I will be filled with joy when we are together again. I remember your genuine faith, for you share the faith that first filled your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice. And I know that same faith continues strong in you. This is why I remind you to fan into flames the spiritual gift God gave you when I laid my hands on you. For God has not given us a spirit of fear and timidity, but of power, love, and self-discipline. So never be ashamed to tell others about our Lord, and don't be ashamed of me either, even though I'm in prison for him. With the strength God gives you, be ready to suffer with me for the sake of the good news. For God saved us and called us to live a holy life. He did this not because we deserved it, but because that was his plan from before the beginning of time, to show us his grace through Christ Jesus. This is such a fantastic passage. We could do a multi-week series just on this passage alone. Nothing short of inspiring and encouraging. But I want to look at a maybe subtle verse that uh, we don't catch all that much when we read from this particular section. Did you guys catch where Timothy learned his faith? It shows up, back up in verse 5. Timothy learned his faith from his grandmother, Lois. And he learned his faith from his mother, Eunice. Learned it from two ordinary women who were faithful in teaching Jesus in their own home making a disciple under their own roof right where they were. Even if your children have grown up, or even if you don't have, you've not been blessed with children, I will say this, hopefully for as long as I have breath in my body, I believe this to the core. Perhaps the greatest kingdom impact you will ever have is going to come in your own family. Perhaps the greatest kingdom impact you are ever going to have is under your own roof. I think of that truth and I think of uh, just the life of Susanna Wesley. Does that ring a bell for anyone? I'm guessing likely not. Susanna Wesley, she lived about 300 years ago. And Susanna, she had uh, two sons who grew up to be major names in the Christian faith. We have John Wesley, the famous Methodist preacher, and his brother Charles, who wrote thousands and thousands of hymns, many of which you would recognize today. But Susanna, she was a homemaker, and she gave birth to 19 children in 19 years. Only 10 of those lived past infancy. She lost nine just due to disease and medical issues of the day. But if you read or become familiar with her life and her story, uh, you're going to find much to respect and admire, much like I have. But there are two pieces in particular that have stuck with me ever since I first heard about this woman years and years ago. 
Susanna, she was a devoted Jesus follower, and uh, just the truth is, with that many kids running around, alone time is going to be scarce. Some of you might be able to relate. So she, institu- you know, she had this value for having alone time with God, so she instituted this regular daily deal, very creative, very unusual. What she would do for God time, she would sit down in her rocking chair, take her apron, and pull it over her own head giving herself a private cocoon. And everyone in the house knew, when mom is having her apron time, do not interrupt her or else. This was sacred time. The other piece was this. Portions of each day were carved out and assigned to each of her children, where they received special, undivided attention and quality time with mom. This time was just as sacred as her Jesus time was. Susanna took this time with her her kids just as seriously as she took with Jesus. And Jesus was often the focal point of one-on-one time with her children. Can you imagine what years and years of this did for her own children? It's estimated that her son John preached to as many as one million people in his lifetime. Charles wrote 9,000 hymns and spiritual songs. Where do you think they learned a faith like that? All because a mother said yes to the place God put her. Do you think God might be using you to raise up a John or a Charles Wesley? Uh, One way to recognize what your mission field potential is, is to make out a list of first all the... We're going to make a... Well, we don't have time to do this morning, but if I'm assigning homework, this is kind of the homework of our time together is just to kind of make a list of who you interact with on a regular basis. But even before that, here's what I would have you do. You take out a pen, you take out a notepad, that's all you need for this assignment later today or later this week, and you first kind of make a list out of, you know, it's kind of along the top of a page, and you just make a list of all the places, locations that you go to in a given week. That's home, that's work, that's school, that's coffee places, anything like that. Friends' homes, restaurants. Wherever you go in your regular weekly routine. So you have that across the top. And then for each of those places, you simply start writing down the names of individuals. People that you talk to and spend time around. That's family. That's friends. That's co-workers. That's other students. That's bosses. Acquaintances. Wait staff. Clerks. Anybody and everybody. Guaranteed, if you practice this exercise, if you do this when you go home and make out this list you're going to find there's scores of names that you can touch the lives of every day, no matter how big or small. You will have your mission field. But even after doing that, you still might feel like you don't have a lot of influence. You feel like you really don't go very many places, or you don't see a lot of people, or maybe you do, but you just can't see any real potential. I would still argue you have a vibrant mission field. When Paul writes his uh, letter to the Philippians, he does so from a prison cell. Many of us know this. We've heard this for a long, long time. He writes a number of letters from different prisons. This time he's in Rome. And as a prisoner, he still finds a way to make Jesus known. And not just in writing this letter and getting it out beyond the prison walls. Listen and read along with me. This is from Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 through 14. Paul writes, And I want you to know... 
my dear brothers and sisters, that everything that has happened to me here has helped to spread the good news. For everyone here, including the whole palace guard, knows that I am in chains because of Christ. And because of my imprisonment, most of the believers here have gained confidence and boldly speak God's message without fear. From the restrictions of a cell, Paul is able to minister to and bolster the confidence of his fellow prisoners. But to me, that's not even the most impressive part of all of this. He writes that even the whole palace guard knows of who Jesus is because of him. Now, he is likely referring to the Praetorian Guard, the soldiers at least stationed in Rome. Many, most agreed there could be as many as 9,000 soldiers stationed in Rome alone. Some of those would have been assigned to the palace prison. Now, it simply wouldn't happen that all 9,000 would know of Paul or his case or why he's in prison. But if we sit down to actually do the math, you can see the potential, the realized potential, of all Paul could interact with. With two guards being around Paul at all times, multiply that by the reality that guards would have been on a rotating basis just so no one guard could become too comfortable or too friendly with any one particular prisoner. Plus adding that multiple shifts throughout the day and multiple shifts throughout a week, it is not outrageous to think that Paul would have influenced and spoke to about the gospel hundreds of Roman guards. All from staying in the exact same spot, from the confines of a prison cell. He's already in prison. He's not going to be in prison again. He's not going to shut up about Jesus. He gets to do this all from just a few square feet. All of us have a unique, specific mission field, and sometimes it is just right under our nose. Susanna Wesley, she had her home. The Apostle Paul, sometimes he had, you know, an entire continent, countries, and vast regions, and sometimes the end. Sometimes he just had a few square feet. We can disciple people right where we are. But just the nature of discipleship is, uh, first we need to feel the fullness of Jesus in our own lives before we can really take that fullness of Jesus to other people. We have to give ourselves some attention first. Take a listen to this uh, modern-day parable from a guy named Tim Elmore. Imagine, if you will, you visit a bakery not far from your home. It's new. You know you're going to love this place because they've hired a new baker who has recipes for breads, pastries, donuts, cakes, and cinnamon rolls that are just to die for. Word has gotten out about this bakery. Crowds start forming lines each day waiting for the new confections to come from this baker's marvelous kitchen. After you purchase your cinnamon roll, you sit down to watch this baker in action. And you notice something right away. The baker doesn't seem to have enough help. Every day, he ends up trying to serve all the customers himself. He is scurrying back and forth, busy with all the requests of the people, but oblivious to what's happening to him. His exhaustion is quickly becoming burnout. What's worse, as you watch him for a few weeks, you see a change. This man is getting thin. Very, very thin. It's almost as if he's shriveling up. So what's the deal? Suddenly the problem becomes obvious to you. This man never stops to eat. The irony is he is so busy serving bread to everyone else, he never stops to eat anything that he serves. With food all around him, he's starving. 
How many of us are walking around feeling so empty or even spiritually starving because we give and we give and we give and never fill ourselves up? How many of us are so busy taking care of other people that we don't take care of ourselves? This is a common, prevalent problem when it comes to, uh, actually, not just discipleship, but just life. I myself, just, you know, being a pastor, just the nature is, you know, we want to make sure uh, other people are filled with Jesus, at least have that opportunity to be filled with Jesus. And then, uh, you know, pastors tend to be giving people, and sometimes we just fall in the trap of not taking care of ourselves all that well. And it's not just, you know, people in my position. Many of you could probably relate to, uh, I'll call it an affliction. If we're going to be our best at living out this word, if we're going to be our best at going, then I think we need to take a play from the Susanna Wesley playbook. So I'll ask, how's your apron time? There's one really, really good tip I've heard from uh, Christian author Dallas Willard. Uh, It's when I can tell just exactly how full or satisfied with Jesus I am. So it's this quote that I look to when I need to kind of self-diagnose or just kind of see how I'm doing. Dallas Willard says this. When you are satisfied with Jesus, temptations will not even look interesting. That's been the best temperature or barometer for my own self. When I'm satisfied with Jesus, temptations, they don't even look interesting. There are, uh, well, there are many reasons why we come to a church building like this one. Sometimes it's uh, that we need to feel filled up. Sometimes we come just so we can feel sent when we leave. Hopefully we'll feel sent when we leave. But right now comes a time where uh, I just want to make sure that we're filled or at least have the opportunity to see that we're filled We practice uh, communion every week, every time we gather here at Southwest. If you're helping serving, uh, that's kind of your cue right now. But just the nature of communion is uh, we forget ourselves. We take ourselves out of this practice. The time when we focus solely on Jesus. We remember and show gratitude when the moment where uh, Jesus willingly gives up his body. We see that with a wafer that represents his body and the juice that... Uh, represents his voluntarily shed blood, a voluntary sacrifice on Jesus' part, where Jesus offers in a number of ways, he offers a number of things. He says, you're empty. Just the nature of living this life is the world is going to leave you empty, and the world is going to offer you any number of things to fill you up. And anything besides me is a counterfeit. So I'm going to pray for us for in this moment through thanks and gratitude that we may be filled up in this moment of communion. They're going to pass the tray. We're going to have a few moments just in silence together. We're going to have a song, a moving song that we can pray through or sing along with. So I encourage you to invite Jesus to fill you in this moment. So let's pray. Father, we want to recognize this moment for what it is and what it can be, even though we do this every single week. That does not mean we leave its meaning to the side or we can become bored with it. This is a moment to remember and be glad and be joyful where Jesus' love for us triumphs over everything when Jesus planted a flag in us. 
So help us be filled. Help us to uh, leave this moment and eventually leave the building, leave the building with uh, full hearts. Not just full hearts, but hearts that are uh, just... Um, it's just spilling out all over every place, even into other lives, that we are more than filled. We give the time to you. Move in us, surprise us, fill us up. It's in Jesus' name that we pray.